Great. Well, thank you very much. And let me begin by thanking Celia for putting together this wonderful meeting um, and for inviting me to participate. So uh, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. And of course, yes, all the other organizers, I should neglect them. So we humans are a, a remarkably successful species. We exist at densities that way exceed what would be typical of a, of a mammal of our size. And we've managed to colonize virtually every region of the terrestrial globe and uh, exhibit unparalleled behavioral diversity in the process. I think at some level we all have some intuition as to how that's been possible and that it relates in no small part to our capacity for culture. And when I use the term culture, I'm thinking again in very, very general terms about our ability to acquire uh, valuable knowledge and skills from other individuals to um, express that information in our, our, our behavior, our tools, our technology, our engineering. And of course, and this is most uh, germane to my talk today, to, um, to build on that reservoir of, of shared information iteratively generation after generation building ever more efficient solutions to life's social, ecological, and technical problems. Uh, is the suggestion that I need to move to another location? I don't know. Instead of one of these? Or, or both of these? Right. Thank you, let's try that then. And of course, right at the heart of this uh, cultural capability is uh, copying behavior or social learning, uh, imitation, teaching. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this in, in very, very broad terms. We humans acquire all kinds of valuable information from our parents and from other important people in our world. And while, while we may be unusual with respect to the extent of our reliance on social learning, and uh, perhaps with regard to the psychological processes that underpin it, the fact that we copy is not in and of itself exceptional. Many other animals, as Celia intimated, themselves will also acquire knowledge and skills from conspecifics and heterospecifics. They learn things like what to eat or where to find it or how to process it or how to move safely through their environment or what a predator looks like and how to escape that predator and all kinds of other things by copying other individuals. These are some of the more familiar examples. But they're so familiar, I don't think I need to go through them in detail. You all know about sweet potato washing in, in Japanese monkeys, or the spread of the pecking open of milk bottles to drink the cream by a variety of species of British birds, the distinctive tool-using traditions of different populations of, of chimpanzees, or even the traditional use of uh, migratory routes in, in uh, various populations of reef fishes. And this is, of course, just scratching the surface. There are literally hundreds perhaps now even thousands of examples of animal social learning and tradition, not just in vertebrates, in many invertebrates too. So these kinds of observations raise a number of questions. Um, one which has uh, particularly preoccupied me throughout my career, and which is the focus of my talk today in a way, is how can we understand the evolution of the extraordinary human capacity for culture out of its roots in something like the traditions we see in other animals today. How can we go from this kind of thing to this kind of thing? And uh, as you may know, I've dedicated a large part of my life to studying animal social learning and traditions. So I'd be the last person to want to denigrate the achievements of, of other animals and their cultural credentials. 
But that said, it seems to me any objective person has to acknowledge that there is a vast gap, or at least seemingly a vast gap, between our closest relatives sitting naked in the jungle using stone hammers to crack open nuts and the awesome achievements of humanity, as, for instance, manifest in our capacity to manufacture a large hadron collider and use it to accelerate particles which are infinitesimally small to vast unimaginable speeds to try to understand extraordinarily complex mathematical physical theory. So this raises the question, since large hadron colliders and satellites and computers and Apollo missions are not the products of clever individuals sitting in their bathtub one day, but rather of a long series of innovations and modifications and refinements and combinations of existing technology and ideas and theories spanning large numbers of individuals over large periods of time. And since either this cumulative property is not present in other animals or is present to such a lesser degree that it remains contentious as to whether it's there at all, then how can we explain, it, rem it, it remains a mystery, how we can account for the advent of cumulative culture. And that's the topic I'm going to try and address in my talk today. I'm going to draw on a number of um, pieces of new thinking coming out of my lab recently, much of it unpublished, but which I think collectively is suggesting some semblance of answer to that question. So I'm going to skip between different bits of theory and empirical work to try and tell that story. I'll begin with a theoretical project uh, that I and my colleagues organized known as the Social Learning Strategies Tournament. This is a competition we organized to try to work out, in a way, the best way to learn in a complex, variable world. It was inspired by a, a, another tournament that you might be more familiar with, organized by Robert Axelrod, concerned with the evolution of cooperation based around the idea of the prisoner's dilemma game, um, for which you may know Tit for Tat emerged as the winner. This, I think, is widely regarded, and quite rightly so, as one of the most innovative pieces of behavioral research of the 20th century. It was a real shot in the arm for the field of the evolution of cooperation. So I and my colleagues wondered whether we might be able to similarly uh, provide some sort of boost and insight into the process of cultural evolution by organizing a competition, inviting other people to submit strategies which we would then allow to compete against each other in a computer simulated context to see uh, if we could gain some general insights into the, the evolution of learning and culture. Fortunately, I managed to get funding for this idea from the EU, and that allowed me to recruit Luke Grendel, shown here, as the postdoc on the grant, and so the work I'm going to describe is really his work. We also had a lot of input and advice from these people here, Rob Boyd, Magnus Enquist, Kimmo Eriksson, uh, Mark Feldman, uh, leading figures in the field of, of, of cultural evolution and, and, and game theory, and others helped as well. So collectively, we, we, we discussed at some length the nature of the game and come up with a, a game with the following characteristics. Um, so it's a, it's a multi-armed bandit framework. I guess you're all familiar with the idea of a one-armed bandit or a fruit machine where you, uh, you, you pull the, the lever and if you're lucky you get some sort of a payoff. Well imagine a, a fruit machine with 100 levers, each with a different characteristic payoff drawn from an exponential distribution. So there are a large number of levers that would give you no return or a very low return and a small number of levers that would give you a high return. So you have to work out which one of those levers or which combination of levers to pull. That, in essence, is the game faced by the agents in our uh, simulated population, the nature of the game that we play. They have a hundred possible behaviors that they can perform. They have to work out which are the high payoff ones. 
But it's more complicated than that because in our simulated world the environment changes and that means the payoff associated with each behavior changes over time. There's also evolution through a birth-death process. So we assume that agents die at random and are replaced by the uh, descendants of other agents who've accrued high fitness during their lives and who will, in, of course, inherit the parental strategy. And the tournament is organized into a series of rounds and each agent in our simulated uh, population has to perform one of three possible moves each round. And the three things they can do are innovate or learn asocially, and this will allow them to add a new behavior to their repertoire and learn the payoff associated with it without error. And it's important they engage in learning because individual agents are born naive, so they need to build up a, a, a repertoire of behavior in order to prove fitness. There's a second way they can learn, which is socially, through observe, which allows them to learn the behavior of a number of other agents, selected at random from those performing behavior in the previous round, and to learn the payoffs associated with that, with that behavior, but with error. And that could be error in two dimensions, both in their, in, in essence, copying the wrong behavior, getting the wrong behavior out of that exercise, and in them uh, miscalculating the payoff associated with that behavior. And these things, the number of agents observed, the magnitude of the errors, and so on and so forth, were, were parameters that we manipulated in the tournament. And then the third thing they can do is they can exploit behavior in their repertoire and get the payoff. This is the only move that gives them any kind of fitness. They need to engage in learning to bring new behavior into their repertoire, but then they need to exploit in order to cash it in and gain fitness. So when people enter the tournament, they essentially had to specify how the agents under their control would utilize these three moves. The final assumption we made was that individual agents possessed memories, so they remembered what behaviors they performed and what payoffs they received. The tournament was evaluated in two phases. There was a round-robin phase, as in Axelrod's tournament, where there were pairwise cont contests between uh, individual strategies. And then the top 10 strategies then progressed to a second phase, which we called the melee, where all 10 strategies fought it out simultaneously over a far broader range of conditions. And we designated the strategy with the highest average frequency, the winner. Excuse me. Okay, so I, I'm not going to give you any, any detailed account of the findings of the tournament. Uh, I'm just going to um, cherry pick some of the more relevant ones uh, for, uh, on the basis of my talk today. So, first thing I think you, you need to know is that we, we, we learn, in the context of this tournament, you can learn too much. That if we look at the proportion of learning moves, that's proportion of moves that are either innovate or observe then there's a strong negative relationship between that and performance in the tournament. The most successful strategies are not learning that, that much. These ones up here are learning a, a relatively small proportion of the time. The vast majority of the time, they're cashing in the behavior they have acquired. But on the other hand, when they did learn, they tended to do so through copying. There was a strong positive relationship between the amount of their learning that was social, that was observed as opposed to innovate, and their performance in the tournament. And the most successful strategies, each one of these little dots, I should say, is an individual strategy that's been submitted. The most successful strategies up here are relying on social learning almost all of the time. Why is that? Why is social learning so effective, at least in the context of our tournament? Well, when people entered the tournament, they effectively programmed the agents under their control to act like rational building, uh, beings, to, to 
build up a repertoire of behavior, and then to perform the behavior in their repertoire associated with the highest payoff. That's how they uh, hoped to win the 10,000 euro prize associated with the tournament. But what that meant was that when other agents copied them, they weren't selecting from a random subset of behaviors, they were selecting from a subset of high performance, tried and tested, if you like, behaviors. And that, I put it to you, is why copying pays. That's why it's, it's so effective in the context of this tournament. In fact, we could, we could switch off that capacity in, in, in simulations after the tournament was run and allow agents to draw from their repertoires at random, and it doesn't pay to copy anymore. The winning strategies are those that don't rely on copy. This simple relationship, however, relies, uh, belies a degree of complexity. So what I've done here is taken 10 strategies that are high performing and 10 that are less well performing and shown them here in more detail, shown over a, a broader range of conditions. If we look at the top 10 performing strategies, then we still see this positive relationship between how much they rely on social as opposed to asocial learning and their performance. By and large, these are good algorithms that are learning efficiently and they utilize social information with such, such efficiency that the more they use, by and large, the better they do. There's a lot of noise here because there are a lot of, a lot of other factors that influence performance, but nonetheless, social learning is good if it's done efficiently. Here, on the other hand, we have poorly performing strategies. These strategies are not using social information efficiently, and that means that a lot of the time, the social learning that they engage in does not bring new behavior or high performance behavior into their repertoires. So we could envisage that if selection were operating in these systems, that you get selection for greater amounts of reliance on social learning here and lesser amounts of this less efficient form of social learning here. In other words, there's a premium on copying efficiently. But what do I mean by efficiently? There are two things really that come out of this tournament. One is with high fidelity, because when we manipulate the fidelity of copying, we find that copying is strong, that the efficiency, the effectiveness of copying is strongly related to the uh, degree of copy error. If there's high degrees of copy error, then copying pays to a far lesser degree. And that, in a way, makes intuitive sense, because in, 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 given the, the exponential distribution of payoffs we've assumed, it's far more likely if you copy someone and you make an error and, and, and essentially acquire the wrong behavior, that that behavior will have a payoff that's lower than the original one you're about to, um, uh, uh, that was the target of your copying, than that it would be higher. The second uh, efficiency factor, which I think is, is probably less intuitive, relates to the timing of copying. Timing turns out to be extremely important, at least within the context of our, of our tournament. So effective strategies were able to time bouts of learning, and bear in mind that most of their learning is social, to coincide with periods when the environment changed. So here, if we, if we look up here at this top figure, this is the performance of the top ranked strategies, the top 10 strategies. The black line represents their average lifetime payoff. So you can see their payoff is plummeting. That represents a change in the environment. Behaviors that they had in the repertoire were uh, yielding dividends. All of a sudden, the environment changes. Those behaviors are no longer high payoff behaviors. And you can see, shown in red, the proportion of learning moves. You can see these, these behaviors will then engage in a spike of learning. They'll bring new behavior into their repertoire, but then they'll stop, and they'll start cashing it in. On the other hand, poorly ranked strategies not only learn too much, but they're not 
coordinating their learning to coincide with when the environment changes. And the net result of that is that their copying is inefficient and fails to bring in high performance behavior into their repertoires. Another example of how the timing, the temporal dimension of copying can be important is provided by the winner of the tournament. This was a strategy called Discount Machine. It was submitted by these two guys, Dan Cowden and Tim Lillycrap, very smart guys from the University of Ontario in, in, uh, in Canada. One was a mathematician, the other was a computational neuroscientist. Uh, so you can see them here receiving their 10,000 euro prize. And uh, their strategy was called discount machine because it, it engaged in a geometric discounting uh, algorithm. It discounted the knowledge that it acquired according to its age, taking account of the rate at which the environment was changing, which it estimated, and scaled the discounting too. It also made projections into the future about the likely utility of the behavior it had in its repertoire, given its age, given the rate at which the environment was changing, was it worth investing in further learning at this point? What is the probability that that learning would bring new behavior into its repertoire that would have higher pay payoff than the, um, than the behavior it already had there? It was a smart algorithm it was applying, in other words. But they had this temporal dimension to copying, thinking about the timing of copying. And that, I, I think, makes us think a little bit about about some aspects of mental time travel which might influence the efficiency with which we engage in copying behavior. I'd like, just before I move on to the next study, to think about the population level aspects of uh, the tournament. So what we have in all these uh, figures is the proportion of learning that's social as opposed to asocial. So here on this end of the spectrum we have purely social, this end purely asocial learning. In this first figure, we have the amount of cultural knowledge held within the population as a whole in their entire uh, behavioral repertoires. And you can see there's a positive relationship between how much social learning is going on and how big uh, a repertoire of behavior is known about in the entire population. Now, if you think about it, this is a very counterintuitive finding because it's only innovation that in could, can introduce diversity into the population. Social learning doesn't bring in new things, it just makes copies of established things. So we might, a priori, expect a negative relationship here. In fact, we find this positive relationship, and it's, it's, it's a real one, it, it, it's not an artifact of selection, all the other things that are going on in this complex simulated environment. You'll find the same relationship if you look within a single strategy. We find this because by virtue of the fact that copying makes multiple copies of each behavioral variant, it means that if an individual agent dies, the behavior that it has in its repertoire is less likely to be lost to the population as a whole, and it has a greater effect on the loss rate than the gain rate, so the net result is you get this positive relationship. If we look at the amount of behavior actually performed within the population, you see on the other hand a negative relationship. The more social learning going on, the, more, or the fewer behaviors are actually being performed. So we get some semblance of, of coordination or, or conformity appearing in the population without any individual strategies actually performing, uh, 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 actually behaving according to a conformity algorithm. Let's think a little bit about the persistence of the behavior, the longevity of behavior within the population. Now, agents in our, uh, in our tournament had an average lifespan of 50 rounds. So if you like, you can think of these numbers as not dissimilar to years for a human. You can see that as the 
proportion of social learning increases, you seem to go through a threshold where all of a sudden you're getting sufficient social learning going on that information has been retained for very long periods of time. This is, I suppose, equivalent to um, cultural knowledge about um, uh, the advent of, uh, uh, of agriculture or, or domestication of animals and so on and so forth. That kind of level of, of longevity of, of cultural knowledge. But on the other hand, if we look at how behaviour changes in its performance, we see with increasing reliance on social learning, increasingly rapid turnover in behaviour. So this is equivalent to fads, fashions, rapid changes in technology. In other words, the point I want to get across here is that just by increasing the amount of social learning that goes on relative to asocial learning, which I think can only be brought about through engaging in more efficient forms of copying, we automatically get many properties that we associate with human culture. We get large amounts of cultural knowledge persisting for long periods of time, we get some semblance of conformity, we get rapid changes in behaviour over short periods of time. And that emphasis on the efficiency of copying, the strategic nature of copying, is actually very consistent, I think, with the output from the um, analytical literature on, on cultural evolution and gene culture coevolution. Co there too, there has been an emphasis on the strategic nature of copying. Researchers have emphasised that individuals ought to be selective with respect to when they rely on social learning and from whom they learn, that natural selection ought to have fashioned specific adaptive social learning strategies that dictate the context under which individuals will exploit learned information provided by others. A number of these strategies have been, uh, have been proposed. I organise them into, into two categories, when strategies, specifying when it would pay to, to rely on social as opposed to asocial sources of information. For instance, copy when asocial learning would be costly, copy if you're uncertain about your, your current circumstances, your, your, your behaviour, copy if you're dissatisfied with the payoff to your current behaviour. In a way, this relates to the timing issue that I mentioned in, uh, in the previous uh, study. And then there's who strategies, specifying from whom you should acquire information. And this again opens up a new dimension to the strategic nature of copying. You could copy the majority or conform to the, to the dominant view, you could copy prestigious individuals, copy the most successful behaviour, copy in proportion to the demonstrator's pace. These are, these are all rules that have been proposed by the cultural evolution literature that have been subject to theoretical analysis and received theoretical support. In other words, doing these things according to the mass is better than copying at random. I should say, in, in, in response to Celia's talk, that I don't think the cultural evolution literature um, necessarily assumes particular mechanisms by which these functional rules are implemented. So uh, the fact that one implements these rules is not necessarily assuming some genetic hardwiring mechanism underlying their, their application. Is that what humans actually do, though? Well, uh, recently my graduate student, Tom Morgan, has been carrying out experiments um, on adult human subjects, exposing them to uh, computer-based tasks. We, in fact, looked at six different tasks in which subjects are given either social or asocial sources of information, either in sequence or in parallel. In other words, they were asked which of these they would like to, to rely on. Let me just describe a, a little bit the nature of the task. So one is a, one is a foraging task where you're, you're asked which of these two simulated patches is the richest. Another is a mental rotation task that will be familiar to the psychologists in the audience. You're asked, uh, are these two shapes the same or different? 
Another is a length estimation task. Which of these two squiggly lines is the longest? And the other three were auditory tasks. So uh, you're asked uh, whether two uh, tones, uh, which of two tones has the, has the highest pitch or the greatest intensity, or in the case of a single pitch, whether it's increasing or decreasing in frequency. And we use these experimental tasks to test nine hypotheses derived from the cultural evolution literature, based on the work of Boyd Richardson, uh, Joe Henrik and Rob Boyd, Carl Schlag. They propose a number of factors they predict will influence how we copy, either positively or negatively. So this theory suggests that, that we should that the amount of copying should increase with the number of demonstrators, with the degree of consensus amongst those demonstrators, with the degree of difficulty of the task, with the cost of asocial learning, with the performance of the demonstrator, and with the difference between the performance of the demonstrator and the subject, and should decrease with the confidence of the subjects in their own ability to solve the task, with the familiarity of the task, and with the quality of the subject's performance. All of these hypotheses were conform, confirmed to some degree. And moreover, we found that in each case, use of that strategy increased payoffs. In other words, in that sense, it was adaptive. Just to give you a little bit of, of, of data from those experiments, what we have here is the probability of using social information, probability of copying, if you like. And you can see in the three experiments where we looked at this, uh, as the degree of consensus amongst the demonstrators increases, so does the uh, use of social information. So does the use of social information, as the theory predicts. It equally increases with the number of demonstrators. It reduces with, the, uh, with increasing subject confidence in their ability to solve the task on their own. And it would seem that confidence was well placed because uh, uh, there was a strong correlation between the co confidence of an individual in their ability to solve the task and their performance. And moreover, we found that uh, the level of copying increased with the quality of the demonstrator's performance, decreased with the level of the subject's performance, and increased with the difference between the two. So in other words, you can predict patterns of copying behavior in humans pretty effectively, drawing on the cultural evolution literature, uh, identifying factors that they say ought to be influencing our copying behavior. And moreover, when humans do implement those rules, it seems to increase their payoffs. It would seem to be adaptive in that sense. Okay, so to sum up thus far, we have, we have evidence that, that copying pays, that there's fitness benefits associated with copying, but particularly if it's done efficiently, the, the cultural evolution literature suggested a number of rules that might help individuals, heuristics if you like, that might help individuals to, to uh, copy in efficient ways, and when they do so, it would seem it does increase adaptiveness. But one might imagine that there is some computational burden associated with implementing the, these kinds of rules. That certainly if you're going to engage in things like computing payoffs to self and other and, and subtracting one from, from the other, or working out the majority behavior and conforming to it, or engaging in the kind of calculations exhibited by the winning strategy in the social learning strategies tournament, where they were, they were making projections into the future about the likely utility of further copying at that point in time, you would imagine that there might be some demand on brain processing power in order to implement those particular algorithms. So is there any relationship between reliance on social learning and 
brain size or other crude measures of computational capability? Well, at a crude level, yes, there is. Uh, my graduate student, Simon Reader, uh, established such a relationship in non-human primates. Uh, what he did was he went through uh, literally thousands of articles on primate behavior, collecting reports of social learning and behavioral innovation, allocated them to species, corrected for a number of potential biases, including research effort. Obviously, some species of primates are studied more than others, and so on and so forth. And then plotted those corrected incidences against various different measures of relative and absolute brain size. And he found positive relationships. So here we have the uh, raw species data. This is independent contrast data. This is the social learning uh, and the innovation cases. So what we're seeing is positive relationships in all cases. Big brain species of primates copy more and invent more new behavior than do small brained species of primates. And this led us to endorse an argument originally put forward by uh, the Berkeley biochemist Alan Wilson, which he called his behavioral drive or cultural drive hypothesis. The argument that uh, in the struggle to survive and reproduce, if individuals could uh, respond to ecological and social challenges by inventing uh, new behavior or by picking up on the good ideas of other individuals through social learning, that this would give them an advantage in, the, in that struggle. And that assuming these capabilities have some basis in neural substrate, this would generate selection for bigger and bigger brains, culminating in humans. These species most reliant on social learning, most reliant on culture, the most innovative of species with the largest relative brain size. I, I think that's, uh, that there's something to that argument. Um, certainly our data is at least consistent with it. I would say, however, that I don't think what we're seeing here is selection for more and more social learning because as we've seen, you don't have to be smart in order to engage in copying. If uh, Drosophila melanogaster and wood crickets can copy with tiny, tiny brains, there's no reason to think that needing to engage in more and more social learning would necessarily require massive brain expansion. Rather, what I think we might be seeing, to the extent that this relationship is causal at all, is selection for more and more efficient social learning. Let me just reinforce the kind of arguments that I would make here. So I th I, I, I've argued that we've seen from, from the social learning strategies tournament, from the analytical theory, that there are fitness benefits associated with more efficient copying and for high fidelity transmission. That might create a premium on more effective perceptual systems to the extent that they allow you to copy with, with greater precision, uh, for instance, fine, copying fine motor patterns, or to copy at greater distances, for instance. We might imagine that there would be some premium on cross-modal mapping or integration across modular strategies, or at least having the, the capability to do this, the plasticity to engage in that, that kind of, to, to put together that kind of modular um, interaction within development, such that uh, they copy to the, or at least to the extent that that enhances the copying of, um, of um, uh, motor patterns and allows individuals to potentially solve the correspondence problem that Celia addressed, the fact that the experience, the sensory experience of demonstrator and observer may, may be quite different. One might imagine that there might be some utility to uh, greater comprehension of the, of the objectives and the goals of the demonstrator to the extent that that enhances uh, 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 high fidelity copying. And of course, 
individuals would have to be able to engage in the kind of monitoring of payoffs and frequency dependence and, and mental time travel and all of the computation necessary to implement all of the functional algorithms that I outlined earlier in my talk. So I'm, I, you'll notice that there's no change in learning mechanisms in, in this list here. So in that respect, I, I, uh, I am in agreement with Cillian. And I also think that the input systems are likely to be important. But I would emphasize that there may be some, uh, there may be some selection subsequently on the processing of the information that comes in through those acquired systems and, uh, and encourages certain kinds of algorithms to be applied. And of course, the net result of that may well be incidentally, a selection for greater brains. Another study which has influenced my thinking quite a lot is a, is a theoretical study that I carried out in collaboration with Magnus Enquist and, and Pontus Strimling of Stockholm University. Actually, the details of this experiment are, are, are not at all relevant to my, to my talk today. We can just kind of leave them out and concentrate on this figure, which is one of the figures which emerged in the study. It shows the relationship between the fidelity of information transmission, the accuracy with which information passes from demonstrator to observer, and the longevity of the trait, the, the, the length of time that a cultural trait stays in the population. The only thing you need to take a, a, a away is, is that these, these functions have an acceleratory nature. Okay? There's a positive monotonic acceleratory nature to these functions. So as, as population size increases, we see an increasingly steep takeoff in the longevity of the cultural trait. What that means is, for a relatively small increase in the fidelity of transmission, you can get a big increase in, firstly, how long a given cultural trait stays in a population. And as a knock-on consequence of that, how much culture a population of a given size can support. So since we've seen from earlier analysis that you might well imagine within the lineage leading to human selection for higher fidelity transmission mechanisms, if one such mechanism did appear, if we have, for instance, the capacity for teaching or for high fidelity imitation or for verbal instruction, automatically coming with that would be probably a lot of, a lot of uh, cultural traits lasting for a, a long period of time. And that in and of itself, no more than that, may help us to understand a large, to a large part, why chimpanzees might, according to Andy White and colleagues, have something like 39 cultural behaviors, whereas the number of cultural behaviors in humans is, what, in the millions, in the billions, too many to even count. Moreover, it strikes me that a lot of animal traditions are, in fact, they're, they're sometimes described as lightning traditions. They're called that. It, it, 